What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am here in New York City, and I am joined by from Washington, D.C., Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise <laughs> Institute. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. It's so nice to do these in the afternoon instead of at night. Well, yes. Well, and nice uh, to be back in our native land. We are so glad you're you're here. And of course, <laughs> we've arranged to have Washington work like a a, a fine-tuned. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Um, uh, Ed Luce, of course, is also with us. He is in Washington, too. Hi, Ed. Good to be with you, David. And we have someone who is a friend of ours, but who has not been here before, John Wolfstall, who is a former senior director at the NSC and advisor at Global Zero, described by himself as the world's biggest Nuclear geek, I don't know if that's true. We've had some other nuclear geeks on who are pretty big geeks, but we're glad to have you with us, John. Thanks, David. Pleasure to be here. Um, you know, I, I think at some point we'll get to the uh, exciting goings on in Washington, D.C. and talk about their implications. Uh, but it struck me in flipping through the news over the past few days that, you know, it's easy to get caught up in, in the daily headlines in Washington, and sometimes we miss bigger uh, issues. Uh, and two, come to mind that in any other era would be dominant. Uh, and right now, uh, I think it's hard for people to get their arms around them. And, and those are that um, uh, last week, the doomsday clock, which measures our risk of um, uh, uh, nuclear uh, uh, annihilation coming from the uh, uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists was moved forward 20 seconds to the point that it was closest to midnight, which is uh, the, 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 the moment at which things come undone, uh, than it has ever been. Uh, and we also have um, a burgeoning um, epidemic of coronavirus, which emanated from Wuhan, China, if the Chinese are supposed to be believed, but went very quickly uh, over the course of the past few days from uh, a couple of dozen cases to now several thousand cases and cases being reported elsewhere in the world. Um, and these are the kind of things that people on an NSC or people in a, a president's um, uh, national security um, uh, broader you know, set of advisors and administration would certainly be zeroed in on as the, the, 
the big scale risks we face. Uh, and I thought it'd probably be a good idea to talk about them and to frame them a little bit because we as the members of the deep state here, the listeners of Deep State Radio, certainly don't want to miss the bigger picture. John, one of the reasons I invited you on was I saw you tweeting a little bit about this and how momentous it was. And I think uh, uh, you uh, you were trying to make the point that we shouldn't lose sight of that uh, in the day-to-day headlines of the impeachment. But I don't want to put words in your mouth. How, how important are developments like these? Well, um one, it, it, it was I was thrilled to be asked, David, and um, we are eager to get as much uh, visibility for these issues as we can. The reason we set the clock every year is to remind people of how we're doing on these existential issues. Um, so, you know, I, I realize walking into the middle of impeachment, uh, democracy under threat, uh, fascism and totalitarianism, uh, you know, on the march. And uh, I walk in and be like, well, you know, don't worry about those things. You've got something much bigger to worry about. It's like the skunk at the garden party. Um, But we still have these tremendously threatening, complicated global issues of uh, nuclear war and global climate change uh, looming down on us. And these are the two issues that inform the clock. You mentioned other issues like pandemics. Those are things that are critically important, but they don't rise in the bulletin's estimation yet to the point of existential threats. Um, But this year, uh, we are in unprecedented territory in the clock. It's been around since 1947. It was invented by the people who invented the nuclear bomb, so they knew a thing or two about uh, big problems and uh, dangerous devices. Uh, And uh, for the first time ever, we've moved past two minutes to midnight and are now 100 seconds to midnight. And we think that's worth talking about uh, and debating uh, why is it that we're in this unprecedented territory? How do we recognize it and uh, convince people that these are challenges that they actually have some power over? Uh, and I think that's you know the biggest challenge for us. We don't just say, "Oh my God, you know the sky is falling." We actually have a long list of recommendations that we urge people to look at to say, "Look, these are human-made problems, and and human beings have the power to reverse these trends, but we have to take them seriously and get on them." Yeah, certainly my fault for leaving out uh, the climate crisis in the midst of that, because if you take the climate crisis and you take um, our slide down a slippery slope in terms of proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, and you take things like pandemics, which may not figure in that calculus, but since I've been in government, have been out there looming as big issues, which require governments to prepare, and I'm not 100% sure this government uh, has done so, Uh, you end up with at least some context for the equally large issue of American democracy at threat. Um, Corey, how do you react to what John just said? Uh, So I am worried about the state of democracy in America, but I would not have set the clock, uh, the doomsday clock at 100 seconds to zero because I don't think the likelihood of great power war is appreciably increased over several years ago. Uh, I think the, both the Iranians and the United States government uh, walked back from escalation in the conflict that was brewing because Hussein Soleimani was orchestrating attacks on the American embassy and on Americans working alongside Iraqis uh, for the security of Iraq. Um, uh, so I, 
I think at the high end of the conflict spectrum, things are much more stable. Um, but I confess I haven't seen the list of policy recommendations that John was referring to, and I'm sure I would agree with a lot of them. John, I feel like you should give us a better education. Will you walk me through some of them, my friend? Sure, happy to, Corey. And let me add uh, to David's voice that thrilled you're back in town and look forward to seeing you more often. Um, so it, it's important to note that, you know, the bulletin, um, we actually set the clock uh, back in November. Um, so we didn't include Iran and the potential for escalation with the United States uh, in our calculations. We included things like the fact that India and Pakistan almost had a full-scale war back in February, uh, and the best uh, analysts suggest that they avoided escalation really by dumb luck as much as anything else. Um, so we are we are concerned not just about the United States and Russia, um, but also uh, what's going on in South Asia, what's going on with North Korea, and all of these factors happening at once. Um, to the recommendations we make, a number of them I think are really very basic when it comes on the nuclear landscape. It's a recognition that the um, United States, by withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal, has engaged in a premeditated escalation strategy, and that is heading in the wrong direction. And it raises the risk for things to get out of control, even if people don't want it to. Um, will it happen? We're not suggesting it's an automatic, but we clearly are concerned that it's more likely now than it was before the U.S. withdrew and violated the deal. Um, we're now in a world where the United States and Russia are not in the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, and where New START is the, the last remaining strategic arms control agreement is due to expire in just over a year. February 5th is the one-year countdown. And so we're concerned that the administration here doesn't seem to care, doesn't seem to be taking that very seriously, uh, and is going to potentially lose all of the transparency and predictability that comes from those agreements, and the United States and Russia are going to again be acting on worst case assumptions. And so we think it's important for the United States and Russia to extend New START and get on with the process of avoiding the arms race we're in. But we also look at getting serious about North Korea, um, recognizing that's going to be a step-by-step -step process and not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, uh, and also recognizing that the United States and Russia, and to a lesser extent China, aren't engaged in the sort of discussions that underpin the stability that came um, after the 1972-1973 arms control process, where we don't understand what the Russian leadership is thinking, and they don't understand what we're thinking, and neither side trusts each other. Each other. And in a conflict, whether through escalation or uh, intentionally probing each other, things can get out of hand really quickly without uh, the, the off-ramps being well-tested and well-used. And so we think that those are some of the basics that people need to get back to doing. It's what people like Deep State, Deep State Radio should love, because that's what the Deep State often does, is maintain these relationship and contacts that you can use if things go south. Um, but right now, they're not being used at all. In addition to talking about nuclear and climate change, um, we talk about the fact that we've entered this new world where you have these new technologies, deep fakes, uh, misinformation, disinformation, cyber warfare that can really impede our ability to act rationally. Um, in a world where you could easily get a video of Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump saying, I'm launching in five minutes and there's nothing the other side can do about it, that's something that could really put countries on edge and can spread really quickly. Um, and we worry a lot about that, not as a, a threat in and of itself, but as a catalyst for conflict 
and as a, a way of eroding trust in what governments traditionally have done in addressing these threats. That's a really nice point, John. I, I would like to get uh, Ed's reaction and 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 uh, Rosa's reaction to all of this, but I would like to throw a little twist into it all too. And that is one of the things that people are coming to realize, even as we are um, uh, sprinkling confetti on John Bolton for being a great American patriot, um, is that he shut down parts of the NSC that deal with some of these big issues that we deal with, like uh, the part that deals with pandemics, for example. And, and he also shut down a bunch of the operations around cyber. Uh, this administration has just simply said that climate is not an issue. Um, and on the issue of proliferation, it pulled out of one non-proliferation uh, deal with Iran. It has played with the food on its plate with regard to the proliferation uh, issues with North Korea and, and so forth. So part of what's happening here is that the country that could be the single greatest force for good in all of these areas um, is is pulling back from doing so or is actually doing uh, damage. Let me go to you, Ed, for another set of reactions to this. Um, yeah, look, I think um, I don't have a theological position on whether it should be 100 seconds to midnight or one minute or three minutes. Um, I mean, I do think it's, it's an interesting quirk of um, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists history that, you know, they began at three minutes to midnight in 1947. And then I think moved to two minutes in the early 1950s when, when America and the Soviets tested thermonuclear weapons and back to several minutes um, in the early 60s. And you can sort of go back and argue that it started too close to midnight for its own sort of room for maneuver. But I think there's no doubt about it that it's correct in having pushed um, that clock closer to midnight in the last three years, um, I think three times in the last four years. Um, I think it was at two and a half minutes to midnight when Trump became president. And it's absolutely correct that it's got closer. And if, if the, the, the goal of this is, um, is as a tool of alerting the public, it's quite correct. You mentioned the fact that Bolton, as national security advisor, had closed down various sort of um, functions within the National Security Council, including the climate change one. I think it's really important the, the doomsday clock has added climate change as you know a comparable existential threat um, to humanity um, as the nuclear one and and uh, I think that on both counts uh, nuclear and other other potential weapons of mass destruction and climate change on all those counts um, we're going backwards we have you know we have an American administration that either denies these um, problems or else um, is actively making them worse. And I think the nuclear one in a Trump second term, the potential for nuclear proliferation for a lot of breakouts, uh, not just in the Middle East, um, not just Iran, but also in East Asia, in East Asia um, uh, is materially higher than it was before Trump came to office. And that this, this makes um, it makes the doomsday clock, you know, a, a far, far more, far more than just an academic thing to be watching right now. It's a real measure of how much danger we're in. And I think it's um, a great public service. I should add that um, I'm sure I'm sure you all know um, Rachel Johnson, but Rachel, John, uh, Rachel Bronson is, uh, is a good friend of, 
of my wife's and came to our wedding. So I, I have some bias, but even if I didn't know her, she's the head of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, um, I would agree with its recent changes. Okay, so, so I Rosa... I do declare my pro-Rachel bias. The, well, there <laughs> seems to be a lot of that going, going around here, to her credit. Uh, Rosa, one of the other things that is contributing to all this is the president of the United States has never met a weapons program he doesn't like. He loves nuclear weapons programs. He thinks we should use nuclear weapons. He'd like to see us have smaller, more usable nuclear weapons. He'd like to modernize our nuclear weapons. Um, uh, so that, that's that's got to be a little bit uh, worrisome too, no? So yes, that, that is reason to be concerned. But before I even talk about that, I, I want to just say something else about the doomsday clock in general. I, I think I think one of the biggest challenges that, you know, the doomsday clock as a as a concept, as a way to get people to pay attention faces is the sort of human psychological tendency to to normalize risk and to make some really false assumptions about the nature of risk and probability. And and specifically I've I've heard many people say Oh come on, the doomsday clock! You know, it started at three minutes to midnight, and now it's like a hundred seconds. And this is ridiculous. They're so alarmist. They're always, you know, they're always making it closer to midnight, but they can't actually get there. They're never going to actually get there. They're just, you know, trying to scare us for no good reason. And the fact that you know we haven't had a nuclear catastrophe yet, so this is all silly. You know, humans are still here. This, the planet is still here. Um, and and you know, that's an inherent challenge, this kind of exercise, because the more you're talking about these kind of really small increments of change from, you know, three minutes to midnight to 100 seconds to midnight over over many, many decades, the the greater the risk that people start tuning you out and saying, this is just silly, clearly none of this is happening. Um, and people, you know, fall prey to the, you know, the cognitive error of thinking, even when a risk is quantifiable and real and the potential harm is is catastrophic that you know the nature of small probabilities or unknowable probabilities is that we we start thinking that they're just never going to happen because they haven't happened yet you know oh i've 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 walked out on thin ice a hundred times and i've never fallen in so therefore it is safe um as opposed to no therefore you've been really really lucky a hundred times um but you know any time you could fall through. And, and, and I don't know what we do about that. So I was just putting that out there because I think, I think this is a problem that we face, you know, humans in general, but also on this podcast in, in general, you know, we're often talking about risks and many times the bad things that we say are, are grave, serious, scary risks do not come to pass. And I would caution you know, all of us and our, our listeners from sort of going, oh, okay, well, then those risks must have been exaggerated as opposed to, you know, I think, the, I think we tend to think in a very muddled way about risk and probability. And that, that's just a real challenge for these efforts. You know, and we talk about the context of people saying don't normalize Trump, um, but, you know, don't normalize these kinds of potentially existential risks. It, it's just so natural to do so because it's hard for us to live in a state of constant terror. And it's so tempting for us to start thinking, nah, that's not really going to happen because it hasn't happened yet. Therefore, it's not going to happen. And I don't know quite how we overcome that. Um, but specifically, David, on the question you started us off on, um, you know, Trump's uh, apparent enthusiasm for every type of nuclear weapons. Uh, let's just have more of them. Um, yeah, I think I think that the Obama administration uh, 
was had a pretty sober-minded approach to, you know, we're not quite willing to say no first use and we're not quite willing to say we're going to get to zero any sec any time now, but we are going to be focusing on reducing our reliance on these uh and and the Trump administration has clearly reversed that. Uh, as usual, as is the case with virtually all of the Trump administration's policies, without really much analysis of why or what are the actual needs, what are the unintended consequences of doing this. So um, before we move on and take 10 minutes to discuss other things that are going on in Washington, John, I wanted to sort of give you the last word on this with the perspective of, um, since this administration seems to be headed in a particular direction on this, what would you hope for from a new administration that could reverse this trend? Sure, David. Um, and first, Rose, I appreciate what you just said. This is now my, um, I, I hesitate to say it, I've been doing this uh, almost 37 years because I started when I was a high school student. Um, <laughs> this is a constant challenge in our field of nuclear war and nuclear risk, right? All Scaring of the deep people state radio nerds are hearts a flutter now, and you are their hero, John. <laughs> um, yeah, but so, John, uh, John's, John's high school nuclear weapons club was something to behold, <laughs> by the way. Uh, no one, no one wanted to mess. No one wanted to mess with the new kid. <laughs> me, me, and, me and a million of my friends marched down Sixth Avenue in 1981 and convinced Ronald Reagan that, in fact, nuclear <laughs> were thinking about. So, um, you know, it. So we 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 deal with this problem all the time, and we have our entire careers. Um, and that's why the challenge is to provide information about not just what the risks are, um, but how you can actually uh, begin to approach these both at the local level and at the national and at the international level. But it's a challenge. And, and you know, on Twitter and elsewhere, I've seen the criticism and the critiques on the bulletin. And I sort of joke, say, you're right, we should probably just ignore these threats and maybe they'll just go away. I mean, the, the reality is that if we sound the alarm, some people will take notice and those people then can influence the people around them and eventually the governments that um, control them, uh, not just uh, in the United States, but around the world, because this is a global challenge. It's not just about what the U.S. thinks and does, although obviously I still think we are, uh, as Madeline said, the indispensable country here. Um, you know, David, your question about what the next administration, inshallah, we have one, can do, I mean, the first part is they can simply recognize what has worked in the past and what has failed in the past. Um, American diktats to countries like Iran and North Korea have failed. John Bolton has had two runs at this. Uh, you know, regime change doesn't work. Uh, telling them that they have to do what we tell them, uh, even if they don't want to, doesn't work. Um, holding out for zero enrichment in Iran, which the Bush administration tried and now the Trump administration tried, doesn't work. Um, and so we know there's certain things that just fail. And we know there's certain things that actually do work. Verified arms control that's negotiated among experts actually works. A, a president who is thoughtful uh, and recognizes the risks of threatening to use nuclear weapons in uh, anything but the most extreme circumstances, that works. Um, my concern is not that this president is overly committed to nuclear weapons development or not committed enough. It's that he doesn't, we don't really know what he thinks. The, the nuclear policy documents produced by this administration don't reflect the president's views any more than any other policy document that the U.S. government has produced represents the president's views, right? The only person who speaks for him is him. Uh, but in a world where things can get out of control quickly, 
where things can escalate, where we have increasing military to military interaction in Europe, in, uh, uh, the, in East Asia, in the South China Sea, um, and where it's not just the United States and other militaries, but other militaries and other militaries. Those are challenges that we have to have very high level engagement, guidance, and thoughtful leadership on. And so I, I think just a return to normalcy, as with so many other things, really would benefit the US uh, from a security point of view. Um, but relying on those things that have worked, the tools that we have in our toolbox uh, that aren't being torn up uh, by this administration or have to be reinvented by the next one, I think is, is the right place to start. Whether that will mean we end up with a nuclear modernization budget that equals a trillion dollars over 30 years, as is currently planned, or half a trillion, you know, th that's that's in the margins when it comes to things like uh, my button is bigger than yours, uh, and uh, if there's going to be an arms race, we're going to win it, so don't even try. So that's the type of mindset we have to get out of. Okay, so we've only got about 12, 15 minutes left here, and it would be we would be remiss if we didn't address what's going on in Washington right now because it's on the mind of our listeners. Um, uh, let me first go to is the. Something, is something happening in Washington right now? Um, uh, well, listen, you know, listen, you, you, <laughs> you may pick up on this, but um, let me let me go to our in-house uh, um, conscience, um, uh, which is to say, uh, Corey, um, not that you guys aren't all our in-house conscience. But let, let me <laughs> start. Oh, <laughs> but I'm gonna enviously hoard that title. Yeah, so so we'll go to the in-house conscience here. Particularly, you're also sort of the government ethicist. Um, all of a sudden, everything has been thrown into a tizzy because John Bolton, he who refused to testify to the House, he who has refused to speak of what he saw in the White House to the press, um, apparently in writing a book, um, uh, uh, excerpts of which were somehow heard about by the New York Times, said things that are, you know, game changers in this impeachment hearing. Notably, he said that the president said he was going to withhold the aid until the investigations into his political foes um, were, were underway, which is essentially the smoking gun at the heart of this case. Um, and uh, now there's a debate, you know, should the Senate hear witnesses and so forth? Um, uh, but Bolton's former chief of staff at the NSC, Fred Flights, uh, has just written something which said Bolton should withdraw this book. He shouldn't be writing about that kind of stuff. Uh, and other people are, of course, saying, why does he need a subpoena? Why does he need to go in front of the Congress? Why didn't he just tell us all what he needs to know? Why didn't he tell the Congress? Where do you, where do you come out on all that, Corey? Um, I come out... Uh, so... Let me say four things. First, uh, when I was leaving the NSC, the NSC lawyers uh, had a debrief for me, same as they have for everybody else, I guess. But in the Bush administration, what the NSC lawyers told us is, we have no way of preventing you writing or talking about decision-making in the administration, but please don't do it. It'd be super nice if you were respectful of the administration in which you served. Um, and that was sufficient to, to keep such tell-all books from being written in the Bush administration. I say that to point out that uh, there is no way the White House could actually prevent John Bolton 
there's no legal recourse. There's no non-disclosure agreement that's actually enforceable. Um, John Bolton could speak if John wanted to speak. Second, um, I agree that if um, an American citizen has information material to something as important to the country as the impeachment of a sitting president, that they have a moral responsibility to share that information with the Congress and with the public, irrespective of whether they are subpoenaed, irrespective of anything else. Uh, he could call up any reporter in this country who would be super happy to print that. Point three, evidently, um, uh, the news in the manuscript uh, that Bolton was nervous about appearing as though he didn't care about the country, he cared about making money off of the book and therefore let slip what's in it. Um, and that's horrible. Um, he doesn't get credit ethically for worrying that his book manuscript might be seen as self-serving when by all evidence, his book manuscript is self-serving. <laughs> Fourth, um, this, I don't think this is likely to present any material change in the impeachment process because nothing, the facts of this case have not been in doubt for a very long time. The only thing that has been in question is whether my fellow Republicans in the Senate are worried enough about the president's behavior that they are willing to convict him uh, and either censure him or remove him from office. And I don't think what John Bolton adds, I think they have demonstrated they're not going to do that. And so they're going to find all manner of exculpations and and voters and history will get to judge those choices. Ed, what do you think the impact of all this is? Is is I mean, it's, you know, if Corey's right and doesn't really change the outcome, then it it extends this for another couple of weeks. But, but you know, maybe that has a, a political effect. Are what what do you think is going to spin out of all of this, or is this a bigger point of inflection than all that? I, I mean, I'd, I'd lend a little bit more weight to the bigger point of inflection because. If this does persuade Senators Romney, Murkowski, uh, Alexander, and Collins to make up a 51 majority to get witnesses, um, uh, and specifically Bolton and Mick Mulvaney uh, and a couple of others are currently serving, then that's four people who Trump is going to label as traitors um, and whose heads he's going to want on a pike. Um, and who he's going to sort of turn on the full sort of demagoguery and propaganda machine against. Uh, and so, you know, the personal risks they would be taking would not be trivial. Um, you know, I, I know we all like to and give them much deserved mockery, um, particularly Susan Collins, but really Romney, all of them, um, for their public prevarications about what the right thing to do is. And then they always, always back Trump when it matters. If they, in this instance, um, choose to, to vote with the Democrats to, um, to command Bolton and others' testimony, um, I think this, this could uh, open up a breach in the Republican Party 
that could become quite significant over time. I agree with Corey entirely that the facts of this case have been self-evident since the day uh, the White House released the transcript of that July 25th call. There's never been any doubt, any reasonable doubt, that Trump wanted a quid pro quo here. And everybody, including the 53 Republican senators, have known that all along. Um, so I don't think we're going to get a situation where he's going to be convicted and removed from office. But I do believe that we could get into a situation where there is the beginnings of a Republican Party uh, split of some kind. And that could be very significant. Uh, yeah, it, it, it certainly could. Rosa, I'll give you the option um, of either responding to that and continuing this discussion of this change in things as a result of um, the Bolton manuscript, or alternatively can talk about what a jerk Mike Pompeo is, either. <laughs> um, boy, that's a hard choice. Can I can I have both? Yeah, sure. Can I ahead. take one from column A and one from column B? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so the only thing I would like to add to what Ed just said, which I think is correct, um, is there is a terrific uh, opinion piece in today's New York Times by two of my colleagues here at Georgetown Law, Neil Kotyal and Josh Geltzer, as well as former Republican Congressman Mickey Edwards from Oklahoma, making the point um, that it's not actually entirely up to a vote of the Senate whether or not witnesses are called because Chief Justice John Roberts, as the manager uh, of the impeachment trial, ha has the ability to make the decision all by himself to decide to subpoena witnesses. And it would take a two-thirds vote of the Senate to overrule that decision. Um, I do not know how closely you know, until until right now, Roberts himself has even been tracking this because I think this is one of those one of the things about impeachment is it doesn't happen very often. So there are very, very few people who are who are experts on the law or take the trouble to sort of really chase down the the finer details. Um, but I think that the the argument made by uh, Neil and Josh and, and Mickey Edwards is extremely compelling um and and has the potential to sort of change the dynamic when it comes to talking about calling witnesses. I, you know, I also think it's 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 more broadly worth uh, thinking a little bit about John Roberts' likely role in these proceedings. On the one hand, he's he's a conservative, he's an extremely conservative uh, guy, um, politically speaking, and in terms of his overall perspective of of constitutional interpretation. But he's also someone who feels very very strongly about judicial integrity uh, and neutrality, and he's someone who has shown himself willing on past occasions to to rebuke President Trump uh, pretty openly, uh, in particular, you know, most recently for Trump's comments about so-called Obama judges. Uh, Justice Roberts said there are no Obama justices. There are no Bush justices. Um, there are, you know, all of us trying to do our best here. So 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 we'll see how that plays out. Um, that said, I, I I am inclined to repeat what I've said before, which is that there are no turning points for Trump's base. Um, and sadly, I think there are no turning points for the majority of Democrats in the Senate. Uh, so even if either enough Republican senators decide that they want to vote to call witnesses or Justice Roberts decides to do so on his own and we have John Bolton coming up and, you know, muttering through his mustache, it's very difficult to imagine anything coming out that that radically alters what the, the outcome 
Um, okay, so that is column A. Column B, Mike Pompeo, what an asshole. I mean, <laughs> it's also just bizarre, right? I mean, for one thing, uh, you know, Mary Louise Kelly, uh, you know, is the question she asked him during the recorded part of the interview were perfectly appropriate questions and they're bizarre questions for him to get upset about. Um, it was completely predictable that she was going to ask them. In fact, she made it very clear in the email correspondence that has since been made public that she wasn't willing to promise not to raise any particular issue. And Pompeo, in fact, uh, you know, in fact, handled the questions in a reasonably skillful way, which is that he batted them away without sounding like a maniac. Um, and he then proceeded to completely unnecessarily make himself look like the asshole that he clearly is by, you know, a press release denouncing her uh, and apparently screaming at her afterwards and cursing at her and so forth. And this silly, weird little jibe uh, that seemed to imply that she was confusing the geographical location of Ukraine with that of Bangladesh, which, given her reputation, uh, which is frankly a great deal better than his, um, uh, <laughs> is just sort of laughable. So this actually seems like a completely unforced error on Pompeo's part in which he ends up looking like an idiot and NPR uh, looks looks good. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that sums it up pretty well. We only have about a minute or two here. John, you're our guest. We hope you'll come back as um, soon as we get the Iranians to stop handling who's muted and who's not. It, it runs much more smoothly. Um, but um, uh, we, uh, I'd like to extend you the opportunity um, to pick uh, to follow up on Rosa's comment and tell us uh, definitively who is the most odious person in the Trump administration. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, David, thank you uh, uh, to everybody, Ed, Corey, uh, Rosa. I, I do think you owe me a mug, so I have to come in person next time. No, no, we'll um, send you. We'll send you that. We'll send you the mug. Don't worry. I, I, I was I was joking with a friend of mine who works at the Department of Energy uh, and said, if you told me at the beginning of the administration that Rick Perry was going to come out of this administration looking <laughs> the best out of everybody, you know, you would have laughed, you would have laughed out the door. Um, you know, it's hard to say. John Bolton arguably is the greatest disaster in government uh, appointees uh, in history. Uh, you know, you'd have to sort of really think through, you know, there are a bunch in there, but, you know, for a guy who not only championed the invasion of Iraq, regime change, getting rid of 10 floors of the United Nation, uh, pulling the U.S. out of the ABM treaty, and then coming back for a second chance to do it all over again, you'd really be hard-pressed to say there's anybody worse than him. Um, yeah, and by the Mike way, I just, Pompeo, to, I just want to interject. He also gave us Rick Grinnell, which is a subject for another <laughs> That's, conversation. That's, that's true too. Although Rick would have, Rick would have, you know, uh, landed. I'll use a nice uh, verb. He would have landed on somebody's radar eventually. Um, you know, on the other hand, Mike Pompeo, uh, who I think has gotten fairly light treatment as uh, a West Point graduate, is clearly the definition of a snowflake. Right? He can't handle basic questioning from the Senate, from the House, from reporters from uh, the public. Um, and not only can he not handle it, but he lashes out and then tries to cover it up. And then when somebody like Ambassador Yovanovitch, uh, somebody I worked with who was uh, retaliated just for being a federal career service employee in the State Department, 
um, Sahar uh, Nerozadeh gets um, uh, uh, transferred unceremoniously because she had worked on the Iran deal, uh, as her boss had told her and asked her to, uh, and then didn't do anything to punish the people that illegally uh, retaliated against her. Um, you know, he has no business in government. He has no business in any position of responsibility anywhere. Uh, but he's not going to be held to account because we have a Republican Senate uh, and a president who, quite frankly, is pleased to have him demolish the things that we worked on and cared about and, and are important for making this country great. So it, it's really tough to figure out who is worse there. Um, suffice it to say that um, if Mike Pompeo has his way and we end up in a shooting war with Iran, then they'll both be uh, damnable. Uh, but but short of that, then Bolton, just given the, the sheer number of Iraqis who died in the invasion, uh, I think takes the cake. Uh, wow. Think about that, folks. Uh, we've just talked about odiousness in the Trump administration. Stephen Miller hasn't come up and Bill Barr hasn't come up. So there's more to talk about. And that's why we come back a couple times every week here at Deep State Radio. We'll be back a little bit later this week. We actually have two episodes coming up later this week. One a uh, special one dealing with a couple of larger issues. Um, and and then our, our, our weekly episode talking about the process of the impeachment trials. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, we'll also, as we go forward, as we've promised, tell you a little bit more about this event we're planning in May, which I can tell you just to whet your appetite a little bit, we're planning on doing with uh, 15 or 20 other leading podcasts. And some of the podcasts that you know and may follow best, like Muller She Wrote or Gaslit Nation or Words Matter or um, uh, Talking Feds or um, uh, Lawfare and others, uh, have all agreed that they'll participate in this and their, 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 their hosts and, and so forth will be there in this discussion as well some uh, leading decision makers from Washington. And it's the kind of thing we think you're going to want to attend. And as a deep state radio listener, you're going to have the inside track. What you've got to do now is go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on the button that says you want more information. That'll register you. And we'll start mailing you out the things that will let you get on the inside track and also get discounts to attend the event, which we expect will sell out rather rapidly for all the reasons you might guess based on what I've just said. So more on that over the next coming days as well. Uh, but for now, go there, click, make sure you don't miss this. And thank you to John, to Corey, to Rosa, and to Ed. All of you come back uh, very soon. And uh, same with you in the audience. Come back very soon. Bye-bye.